welcome. Uh, you can uh, turn in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. It's the last book in the Bible. We're in uh, chapter one, or you can just hold it up on your phone, Revelation 1 NIV. It'll also be on uh, the screen as well. Uh, you know, this book attracts a lot of attention. This week, someone sent me this headline. A televangelist from Arkansas claims Satan is engineering Taylor Swift's marriage to Travis Kelsey so that she can give birth to the Antichrist and launch the apocalyptic thousand-year war against Christ. I had a certain daughter last night say my pop culture references and sermons are terrible. So there. <laughs> and you guys laugh, and I wish I could say that that kind of thinking was fringe. It's not. It's normal. I have received many multicolored, multi-font letters over the years telling me about the end times. For some, from whatever reason, for those letters, that always centers on a Democrat in the United States. And it just shows you, just as an aside, how far off you get. If your country is at the center of the book of Revelation, you're already reading it wrong. But Christians get caught up in all this type of stuff. It, it, Christians believe this type of stuff. This week, I was reminded of a group that is taking deposits to watch your dog in case you get raptured and the dog is left behind. <laughs> I, that was a good pun. <laughs> I, I, have a, I had a ministry contact me this week, this week to see if our church wanted to get ready for the return of Christ. You know, many people are confused reading the book of Revelation. You're, you're laughing because you think it's funny, but you all know people who would get these emails and be like, this is exactly what's happening. And mocking them is not the way to change their mind, just as an aside in case you're wondering. Revelation is different from most books of the Bible or all books of the Bible. This is not a parable. This is not a poem. This is not history, this is not a sonnet, this is not satire, this is apocalyptic literature. And that's what makes Revelation so different. And for the first century here, they would know exactly what this is. It wouldn't be some kind of strange writing, it would be a literature they're familiar with, and they would have had a much easier time understanding it than we would. The book of Revelation is a book given to us in symbolic form about Jesus Christ in order to bless us. That was last week. These symbols are the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. They invite us into the world God has made to open our eyes to this unseen world. And now we come to the first vision of Revelation in chapter 1, 9 through 20. Now, you may remember last week that when I told you we don't need to look at the newspaper to understand Revelation. We need to read, go backwards and understand the Old Testament as we read Revelation. And this is certainly the case. I mean, there are somewhere between 200 and 1,000 allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And these are really the first ones. And so let me just start with a question and just think about this. Where in scripture is Jesus described? Where is his appearance described? Think about it. You, you know, you might go to uh, Old Testament and think, okay, there's a prophecy, the Messiah isn't anything to look at. Now you're going through the Gospels and you're thinking, uh, uh-oh, there's nothing. There's nothing in the Gospels about what Jesus looks like. And you come to Acts and you're like, well, there's a voice and there's a bright light, but there's no real appearance of him either. The only description we have of Jesus that is detailed is here. 
in the entire Bible. This is it. So let me help you get your eyes off yourself this morning. Get your eyes onto Jesus. We always say we want to lift our eyes to Jesus, turn my eyes upon Jesus. Well, what are you looking at? It's going to be Revelation chapter 1. So first, John, the brother of Christ, verse 9 through 11. This is the third time in nine verses John mentions his name. Do you think it's important? The author is probably the author of the Gospel of John, probably the letters of John, same author. This is most likely John, the one who raced to the tomb and beat Peter. Apocalyptic literature is usually written without the author mentioning his name. And so this author doesn't just mention his name. Hey, this is from John. It's, I'm John, I'm John, oh, and I'm John. It seems to mean that this, this has to be someone who is well-known, which makes you think it has to be the Apostle John. I mean, how many Johns are floating out there that if he just says the name John here, everyone goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I know who that is. It's probably the Apostle John. And he tells them where he is and why he's there. Keep going, verse 9. He's on the island of Patmos because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, Patmos is an island off of Turkey near Ephesus. He's been exiled there. There's an, and this is another reason why to think this is the Apostle John. Why would they randomly exile some random guy named John? He has to be a leader. This has to be someone who everyone knows. And so, educated guests, this is the Apostle. And he starts by saying, okay, I'm on the island because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I, John your brother, verse nine. I don't wanna let that, just, that word kind of just slide by as we read it. You know, sometimes you read the Bible, maybe I'm the only one, you read the Bible and you just kind of let words go by. I, John, your brother. You know, from the beginning, the Christians, uh, when they came to faith, were given a f new family. And I tend to make fun of Southern Baptists for a lot of reasons. One of them being they walk around calling everyone brother and sister because they don't know anyone's name. But the reality of them doing that is very sweet and very deep. There is something about being adopted into a family and all of a sudden getting all of these brothers and sisters. When conversion happens, you're, you're given a family. You're, you're adopted. You have this bond that goes deep. You have this affection that is created that goes deep. That happens at the moment of conversion. You could be a brand new Christian and bang, you have this unity with people and this family that you're given that you didn't have 10 seconds prior. The, the beauty of the gospel uh, in, a, in a church should make you marvel at how different people are in this room and how different people have been throughout history as Christians have united together. I'll just give you one example from the New Testament. I've used this one many, many times, but I am a pastor. I repeat myself. And one of you in the front row always starts doing this when he, they know they've heard it four times, five times. I don't care. Get this one in your heart. This is at the end of Romans. This is the longest letter in the New Testament. And Paul closes the letter by listing names. Here are the end of Romans 16, 20 through 23, a few names. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. So this is the end of Romans now. Timothy, 
My co-workers send you greetings, as does Lucius, Jason, and Sostifer, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote this down, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church enjoy, send you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Cortus send you their greetings. Now, what can you get out of a list of names? Well, Timothy is the co-worker. We see him in the book of Acts. Erastus is the public official of Corinth. And if you go to Corinth today... There is the old road into Corinth, and Erastus' name is inscribed on the actual road. And then there are two names to call out, Tertius, who wrote this letter, and Cortus. And here's where you just got to marvel at the beauty of this whole thing. In the Roman world, those who were born into slavery lacked personhood, and they were not considered humans by, uh, by people in their culture. And so they were not even given names. They were just called by their birth order. Guess what Tertius' name is? Third. What is Cortus' name? Fourth. So here's Timothy. Here's Erastus, a public official. And then here is Tertius, third, the man who wrote the book of Romans. Think about that. No personhood, no value in the culture. He's the one writing down Romans, and then at the end of Romans, he goes, I, Tertius, also send you greetings. He's got a line in scripture himself. And then he hands a letter to a woman named Phoebe, and Phoebe delivers it to the Romans. Paul says there is no slave or free, there is no Greek or Jew, there is no male or female, man or woman, there are only those who are in Christ. You should just sit back and marvel how different we are in this room. You know, it's easy to feel unity with people you barely know. Some of you have known each other a while. Uh, you guys are different. And to have a family that loves you is something that not everyone has. But in this room, immediate family relations because of Christ himself. And as an aside... If you ever find yourself sideways with somebody in a church, you tell yourself, they are my brother, they are my sister. Maybe that makes you wanna fight more, but they are my brother, they are my sister. This is someone for whom Christ has died. Hmm. Okay, back, that's enough on Romans. Back to Revelation chapter nine. He shares three things with them. Suffering, the kingdom, and patience, endurance. So John is a member of the same family, and now he's saying, not only am I your brother, but I am sharing the same thing as you. So the word they're suffering is affliction or distress. I don't think I need to tell you what that means. Some, he's, he's suffering. And then he says, and I'm experiencing the kingdom. Now that is not a normal combo, right? Like I'm experiencing the victorious com uh, kingdom of God, and I'm experiencing suffering at the same time. Now, if you wanna do a little Bible study, uh, for yourself, do it on the phrase kingdom of God or the kingdom, and you might find yourself confused. Here's Mark 1. This is Jesus' opening lines in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. So what is that? The kingdom of God is right now, at this moment. Mark 14, 25. This is Jesus speaking about his death. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when you drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus, didn't you read Mark 1? The kingdom is now. Oh, the kingdom is something in the future. 
Here's the Apostle Paul, Romans 14. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. When is the kingdom of God, Paul? He's saying it's right now. Here's 1 Corinthians 4. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. When is the kingdom of God coming? It's coming right now. And yet 1 Thessalonians 5, here's another letter of Paul. The kingdom of God is God's future vindication of his people. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. You know, Christians have messed this up. Uh, you, you might know Christians. You might be one who's messed this up. In times when there are war, there's war, you hear Christians say, well, this is the end. This is it. This is clear. Scripture says it. There is war. God is coming. And they seem to forget Jesus said, no one knows the time. And yet when things are going great and everything's successful and we're unsuccess over faithfulness, we say we're daughters of the king and sons of the king and we are victorious rulers with him. He is our father. What are you supposed to do with this? This kingdom that is coming, this, he's, he's in the kingdom that is here, this kingdom that John is uh, you know, experiencing and the suffering that he's experiencing. There is a phrase that theologians use to describe how the kingdom is described. <laughs> And it is the phrase already and not yet. So when Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew, what does Jesus say? This is the Lord's prayer. Pray, people, your kingdom come. When? When? When, when does Jesus want that to happen? Well, when I pray it, I think, I want the kingdom to come right now in Bozeman. I want Jesus to reign over people's heart. I want the revival to happen. And at the same time, I want him to return right now and end this whole thing. When is the kingdom? It's already it's not yet. His last thing he shares is endurance. This is one of the main themes of the New Testament. Things get hard, choices are made, you have to endure, you have to keep going. You know, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I understand this uh, call to endure, this call to endure, this call to endure, because things get hard and you look around and like the people you started walking with Jesus with aren't around anymore. They, they, they quit on lap two. They quit on lap three. Even if, as, if you're a brand new Christian in this room, you, you may have experienced it. Let's say even students who ex, you know, came to Christ last semester and said, I, I have Christ as my savior, three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, they're like, this actually doesn't jive with my life. This doesn't, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not gonna get a job I want. This isn't gonna be helpful for me. And so they treat Jesus like a piece of clothing and they just take it off and they go, whatever, endure endure. Verse 10, John mentions the Lord's day. He's in the spirit. What, what, is, what are all these things? This is the one time in the New Testament that the phrase the Lord's day occurs. There is a similar phrase, the Lord's supper, but this is it. What is going on? Well, something happened in Christian worship that moved the worship for Jews and Gentiles from Saturday to Sunday. It began happening in the book of Acts. In Acts 20, Paul is teaching, and it says all the Christians gathered on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. And so, listen, you, if you read the New Testament, uh, you find that one of the main things they're wrestling with is what? What day should we worship on? And you know what Paul's answer to that question is? Do what you want. I don't care. But Paul, there are commands in the Old Testament about keeping the Sabbath 
and keeping it holy. And God has given us all these commands. Should we not follow them? And you see the Christians wrestle with this. And now this is 30 or 40 years after that has been going on with the apostle Paul. He's now with the Lord. And John just throws it in there, Lord's day. I guess the issue is settled. I mean, if you want to do a little Bible study on the side, just do Sabbath to Lord's day and good luck. He was in the spirit. This occurs four times in the book. What is four? Cosmic completeness, seven perfect number. And so each time something major happens. So there's this time, there's Revelation 4 when he's caught up into heaven. There's Revelation 17 when he's looking at Babylon. And then there's Revelation 21 when he's in the spirit. And each of that one is the new heavens and the new earth as the new Jerusalem comes down. What does it mean to be in the spirit? We don't really know. The charismatics seem to know if you ask them, but do we really know? I mean, Paul says to pray in the spirit. Jude says to pray in the spirit. Whatever the case is, the spirit has overwhelmed John and is leading him through this, this vision. So he hears a voice. He has not seen anything yet. And it's behind him, it's like the sound of a trumpet, crystal clear. A trumpet announces kings. A trumpet is a military call to arms. It is a, is a call to worship. And then the voice says, in verse 11, write this all down for the seven churches. Good job, Mitch, you said them all right. Now, these seven churches are on a mail route. So he's on Patmos, the closest church is Ephesus, and then draw a big circle, and that's the mail route. This is a letter. And so what happened is he wrote, the, he wrote the revelation. He gave it to someone. Someone went to church by church, and they read it, probably made copies in each of these places. But it's seven, number of perfection, as if to say this might be for them, but it's for the church. And so John, fellow brother, fellow sufferer, worshiping on the Lord's day, spirit overwhelms him, and he hears a voice, write this down, and so what does he see? Good question. Point two, he sees Jesus, this overwhelming Savior, verse 12 through 16. Check this out. John turns around, he's heard a voice, and now he sees Jesus. Now, we know this is Jesus from passages as we go through it. And he sees him walking amongst lampstands, seven golden lampstands. What is that? In Exodus, the lampstand is part of the tabernacle. It's the place where God's presence is. It was the place that they lit. And guess how many lampstands were in the temple? Guess. Seven. There you go. A little back and forth here. Okay. It's, it's seven. Seven lampstands in the Holy of Holies to light it. It is the place where God's presence is. In Zechariah, there is a lampstand with seven lamps. And the lampstand is the power of the spirit. Here it is from Zechariah 4.2. I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it and seven channels to the lamps. Boy, that number seven seems to be important, doesn't it? And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. And I asked the angel, what are these, my Lord? And he said, don't you know what these are? I mean, what kind of question does an angel ask that? You don't know what these are? No, I don't, I replied. Uh, that's my translation. No, my Lord. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by the spirit, says the Lord God Almighty. So the lampstand there 
is an expression and an extension of the entire temple and the presence of God, particularly the spirit. So John pulls all this imagery. Think about, think, think of how symbols enhance your view of God. Think about this. He pulls from Exodus and Zechariah. And the imagery is the church is now the lampstand, which is in the holy place. The lampstands are the place where the Holy Spirit has its power. The lampstands are the place that are in the holy of holies. The lampstand is the place where Christ shines bright. The lampstands are the extension of his presence. The lampstands are the church. You can't get that by just writing three bullet points. You need images and symbols. The lampstands is where Christ is. It's the holy place. Christ is not far away from here. Christ is not some distant dictator or ruler. He's not standing over us. The picture is he's walking amongst us right now. He's walking the rose. Maybe this way. You're too bunched in. He's walking the rose. He's here. As other places in Revelation will say, he knows. Redeemer is one of the lampstands. Think about this, Redeemer Church, Journey Church, Grace, Venture, there's others. Redeemer and all these churches in Bozeman, just one of the lampstands that sits in the holy place where God's presence is. I've never felt this more than when a woman I knew named Gwen Voss died. Gwen died seven days before her wedding. Tim, her father, had been with her. Kathy was then, then came in. She was, I think she was a nurse. And Gwen sat up and went into cardiac arrest and died. Her previous roommate, Kathy, said, was not doing well, physically bitter, surly. Two days before Gwen died, an older woman was brought in to replace this bitter person. And Kathy had actually written, Tim, I hope when I'm 90, I'm as beautiful as this woman. So her heart stops, Gwen's heart stops. Kathy and this 90-year-old woman are rushed out of the room. And the woman says, honey, come and sit up here with me. She takes Kathy's hand. And Kathy says, I just experienced an incredible amount of peace in this moment. She then says, Kathy says to this woman, do you know the Lord? And the woman says, of course I know the Lord. My grandfather was a minister. Come and pray. And so she prayed in that moment, this random 90-year-old woman who's in this room at the exact moment Kathy needs her. And then she says, I know why I am here now. God sent me to be with you. I was just feeling a little dizzy and my doctor put me in the hospital. She then shared how she had lost two children of her own, one to cardiac arrest. And she has shared the promises of God. Kathy wrote afterwards, I don't even know this woman's name. But then I knew that God had sent her to me in this most difficult hour. I knew Gwen was home with him but he was caring for me and my family. What, what's the point of that? And, and hundreds of stories like this is that Christ knows. Christ knows. He walks among the lampstands. He's walking in Redeemer now. He knows what you're gonna go to at home. He knows your own soul. He knows your self-talk. He knows your relational stress. He knows things are going great. He knows your injustice. He knows your tears. He knows your mistakes. He knows when you've screwed up. And that can all be one of two things, a great comfort, right? He knows. Or, uh uh-oh, 
he knows. Kids, how many times have you been caught and dad comes up to you and says, I know. Yeah, <laughs> that was my kid. <laughs> yes, son, I know. For some, it means judgment. And as you read the book of Revelation, you get both. Comfort, judgment. How do you feel that God knows your computer searches and your words and your self-talk and how you're expressing yourself to other people? Is it, oh, thank God? Or is it, uh-oh? So what does the resurrected Christ look like? He's what this person, this person like the son of man is walking among lampstands and you're not supposed to draw a picture. Okay, this picture is not making its way into children's coloring books and don't get any ideas because last time I said that there were things plastered all over my office. This, no. Now this is a combination of Daniel 7 and Daniel 10. Let me read them both to you. This is Daniel 7. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like the son of man coming out of the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. So that's, that, that's God himself. And he was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All the nations and peoples worshiped him. His dominion and everlasting dominion will not pass away and his kingdom will be one that will never be destroyed. That's Daniel 7. Here's Daniel 10. And I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of gold from Upaz around his waist. His body was like topaz. His face was like lightning. His eyes were flaming torches. His arms and legs like beams of burnished bronze. His voice was like the sound of a multitude. So there's the image from Daniel 7. There's someone who's not the ancient of days, who's coming into the presence of the ancient of days, who is overwhelming. So now back to Revelation, verse 13. This person has a robe down to his feet with a golden sash. This is the, this is the robe of a priest. This is, uh, this is that, that word is used in the Old Testament in the Greek uh, translation to describe what the priests wore. And the golden sash is just part of his outfit. And that makes sense. Christ is the high priest. He mediates us between us and God. He actually is such a great high priest that he gives his own blood. So he ends the priesthood in its entirety and ends the sacrificial system in its entirety because he's the sacrifice. Verse 14, his hair is white as snow. This is from Daniel 7. Now this is where the metaphor, this is what makes Revelation, I love Revelation. This is what makes Revelation so crazy. Verse 14, this is a quote of Daniel 7, 9. As I looked, thrones were set in their place. The ancient of days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. His hair on his head was white like wool. So who is this person? This person on one hand has the appearance of the one in Daniel who comes into the ancient of days. And yet he's also the one who has the appearance of the ancient of days. You can't get this reading Romans. Like the, the mixing of the symbols are amazing. Who is this person? That's not the denigrate Romans. I'm sorry, Paul. It's someone who is wise. Look how John emphasizes the color. It's white as wool. It's white as snow. You know, in the Gospels, uh, in the events we call the transfiguration where Jesus kind of revealed his glory, all we, all we know is that it was white. It was shining. It was bright. Something happened. You know, he, he dies. He's resurrected. Everyone interacts with him normally. 
It's, it's Jesus. People know who he is. People recognize him if he lets them recognize him. There's no like questions like, who is this? Oh, this is Jesus. But then as you get through Acts, you have the apostle Paul interact with Jesus and it's more like this, white light, shining bright. Something happened in the ascension where he is ascended in the glory, where he's now ruling over, over the world as king because he has done it by dying and resurrecting and conquering death. So he does that. And now Jesus is not just the representative of the ancient of days. He is the ancient of days. You know, I've met many Muslims who have experienced this type of Jesus, this enthroned Jesus. My, my favorite one is this old uh, Persian woman who was terrible. And she was so bad, she was going to get kicked out of a refugee center. And you've got to be something to get kicked out of a refugee center. They would, they would even offer her help. She was difficult to get along with. She just had a hard life. And then one day, she comes in the center, totally changed. And my friend who's a Persian pastor saw it and immediately went to her and said, what happened? And she said, I was standing outside uh, yesterday, or no, today, and uh, uh, I went to open the door, and the door was locked. And so I sat down. And then this man in white, very bright, I couldn't see him, came up to me and said, the door is open. And I said, the door is closed. She's arguing with Jesus. The door is open. And he said, I am the door. That's a quote from John 9, 10, 9 and 10. If anyone enters, he will be saved and will go out and find pasture. And she gets up and she opens the door and there's the Persian pastor standing in front of her. And from that point on, she was handing out Bibles and putting them in the, the purses of Afghan women and, and Persian women saying, you should read this book. You should read this book. Something happens after his ascension that is in more in line with Revelation 1 than just we see Jesus. He has eyes like fire. That is, to be gazed upon Christ is to look into the fire. I mean, have you been with people who are falling asleep? Some of you right now? You, you have not, people who are not alert. Jesus is never like that. He is always alert. When, you, when he sees you, you know his gaze is on you. He's not like Sauron's eye or something or, you know, from Lord of the Rings. But his intensity is great. His eyes are filled with passion. His eyes are filled with zeal. Some of you, you know this kind of person, right? Like when you look at them, they are looking at you. And you almost feel like shrinking back because it's so piercing. I don't like those people. Verse 15, bronze feet. There's about 100 guesses of what that means. I'll keep going. The voice is like water. There are two parallels in Revelation in 14 and 19. The sound of water is like, a, the voice is like a peal of thunder. In chapter 19, it's like the sound of harps playing, people shouting hallelujah. You get the point. It's and his voice, first it was a trumpet, but now it's like standing under a waterfall and you've got someone yelling at you like instructions. You're about to die because people are coming over and you're like, what, 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 why? The overwhelming flood coming over the waterfall. That's the voice of Jesus. Verse 16, in my right hand, he held seven stars. The stars are the angels of the seven churches. That seems to mean that every angel has, every church has an angel. Let's not build a theology off of that. And then out of his mouth comes a sword. Now, don't draw this, kids. 
This is from Isaiah 11. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. He will breathe of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Revelation 19, 15. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword which will strike down the nation. See, that's, that's out of Isaiah. Now Revelation 19 quotes it. Or Hebrews 4. For the word of God is alive and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. So what is going on here? It's that when Christ speaks, you got the waterfall, you got the trumpet, and now you've got the word of judgment coming out that will pierce anything it touches. You cannot stop the words of Jesus. That's the point. So there it is. I'm your brother. Here's this overwhelming picture of Jesus. What should John do? Last thing. Well, here's Jesus, the tender savior. Verse 17, John responds like anyone in their right mind would do, wouldn't you? He falls down as though dead. So here's John, who we assume is the apostle, who experienced Jesus on earth and in his resurrection. But in this moment, John's like, no, boom, on the ground. But something wild happens. I mean, you, you see this in other places in scripture, right? Like everyone, they experience God and boom, they're on the ground, overwhelming common thing, but this is different because Jesus touches him. He placed his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. Uh, Jesus, uh, didn't you just, uh, don't you know what you look like? (laughs) What else are you supposed to be? In the book of Revelation, there is no running into the arms of Jesus. That's like a common uh, thing we see in artist's work and people say, when I see Jesus, I'm just gonna run up and I'm gonna hug him. But in Revelation, none of that's true. It's you fall down dead and then Jesus puts his hand on you and says, you don't need to be afraid. And what are the reasons? I am the first and the last. I am the living one who is dead and now alive. I hold the keys to death and Hades. Let me just make a side point here because I think it might help you. Ever had Jehovah Witnesses knock on your door? Some of you? This is my go-to. You start in verse eight. So Jehovah Witnesses believe Jesus is not God, created being. I start in verse eight. I say, read verse eight. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and was and is to come. And I say, okay, who is that? And they say, well, that's God. I say, great, I agree. Let's look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He placed his right hand in on me and said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. And I'll say, okay, who is that? Well, first and last is Alpha and Omega. Who is that? Well, that's God. I agree. Now verse 18. I am the living one. I was dead. When did God die? There's no answer. Jesus now tells John not to fear because he's alive, because he holds keys, because he can unlock the realm of the dead. Hades is just the the realm of the dead. And Jesus is saying, I have the keys to that. I can open that door and I can close that door. And if you're a Christian, especially those who are being killed and facing death in the first century, knowing that he can open that door is kind of a big deal. He then commissions them, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place. If you want to just put a little dash next to this one, many people think this is the interpretive key of the entire book. And there are about 300,000 ways to interpret this. And you think, what? 
Some people think this is programmatic. That is, Jesus is saying, what you have seen, that's chapter one. What is now, that is chapter two and three. And then what will take place later is chapter four through 22. The only problem with that is that chapter four seems to be now. Chapter 12 describes something in the past that is happening now. And so you have this past and present and future always happening in the book of Revelation. That's not, there are a lot of people who are Christians who love the gospel and love God's word who think this is the, this is the way to interpret the book of Revelation. Chapter 19, verse 19 is everything, verse one through 18, now is chapters two through three, and then four through following. I'm not going to rabbit trail it because you can still understand what's going on in this passage. John introduces himself. I'm your brother. Think of this. He's the apostle. He's He's got big boy pants. He's legit. Okay. I'm your brother. I'm your fellow sufferer. I'm your fellow race runner who got, was praying in the spirit on the Lord's day. And then here comes Jesus. Meek and mild. No splendor and majesty an overwhelming display of who he is, he knows. And then Jesus touches John and says, don't be afraid. You see, in the end, this is what the book of Revelation is about. People are afraid to read the book of Revelation and Jesus comes down and puts his hand on you and says, don't be afraid. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. And now as it goes out, drill it down in the hearts of everyone here. May they remember that you know. Even as we laugh about it uh, with a child, we, it's serious. You know, Lord. And uh, you know better than all of us. We thank you you've adopted us into this family, brothers and sisters. We thank you for the love of God and Christ for us. And we thank you that you have set us free and that you give us this book to bless us.